there, good day everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you, and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So, welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. So we lost a couple of singers this week, listener. Judith Durham and Olivia Nugent-John. Now, the Seekers music really wasn't my idea of music, but that doesn't matter. Judith herself had such a Oh, such a beautiful voice, like a bell that you wanted to listen to her, even if you really had reservations about the lyrics. Some of them, were they even lyrics or some nursery rhyme? But that doesn't matter. Olivia Newton-John, of course, wasn't anybody's idea of a country singer, but she was more comfortable in her latest out of pop. But if her image was overhyped, in another way, Olivia was completely genuine. Her work with cancer sufferers and fundraising for the Austin was genuine and selfless and, unlike a lot of celebrity charity work, was not an exercise devised by an agent or a PR person. Neither Olivia Newton-John nor Judith Durham would appear in a list of my, um, what, 50 favourite women singers? Perhaps not even my list of 100 favourite women singers. But they did both make a real contribution to Australian and world music. And they will be missed, yes. And I'm going to have to play for you right now the lyrics that Judith Durham wrote. And I give her great credit for this. The lyrics she put to Advance Australia Fair. Sing, advance, Australia. 
Listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Now I have something terrible to tell you, listener. It's a terrible story that I saw on the BBC. And I'll start it off like a story because it is a story, though a true one. It was a mild winter's morning at the height of the Cold War. It was the 17th of January, 1966, and around 10.30am, a a Spanish prawn fisherman watched a misshapen white parcel fall from the sky and silently glide towards the Elberan Sea. It had something hanging beneath it, though we couldn't make out what it was. Then it slipped beneath the waves. At the same time, in the nearby fishing village of Palomares, locals looked up at that sky and witnessed a very different scene. Two giant fireballs hurtling towards them. Within seconds... The peace of that sleepy rural village was shattered. Buildings shook. Shrapnel sliced towards the ground. And body parts fell to the earth. A week later, at the US Naval Air Facility in Sigonella in eastern Sicily, a bomb disposal officer named Philip Mayers received an urgent message. He was told there was a top-secret emergency in Spain and he had to report there at once. However, this mission was not as covert as the military had hoped. Newspapers around the globe had been reporting rumours of a terrible accident. Two US military planes had collided in mid-air, scattering four B-28 thermonuclear bombs across Palomares. Three of these bombs were recovered on land, but one had disappeared into the sparkling blue expanse to the southeast, lost to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, along with its 1.1 megaton warhead, with the explosive power of 1,100,000 tonnes of TNT. It's still there, somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea of Palomares. In fact, this isn't the only time a nuclear weapon has been misplaced. There is a name for misplaced nuclear weapons. 
They're called broken arrows. There have been at least 32 broken arrow accidents involving this catastrophically destructive earth-flattening devices since 1950. In many cases, the weapons were dropped by mistake, by mistake, or jettisoned during an emergency and later recovered. But three US bombs have gone missing altogether. They're still out there at this moment, lurking in swamps and fields and oceans across the planet. All this happened during the Cold War, when the USA kept airplanes armed with nuclear weapons in the sky at all times. At all times. And the Soviet Union's nuclear past is particularly murky. It had a master stockpile of 45,000 nuclear bombs by 1986. And they have known cases where nuclear bombs were lost and were never retrieved. But unlike with this USA incidents, they all occurred on submarines and their locations are known, if inaccessible. One of these cases was in April 1970, when a fire started spreading through the air conditioning system of a Soviet K-8 nuclear-powered submarine while it was diving in the Bay of Biscay. That's a treacherous stretch of water in the northeast Atlantic Ocean off the coasts of Spain and France, and it's notorious for its violent storms and where many vessels have met their end. But this Soviet submarine had four nuclear torpedoes on board, and when it sank, it took its radioactive cargo with it. But these lost vessels didn't always stay where they sank. In 1974, a Soviet K-129 mysteriously sank in the Pacific Ocean northwest of Hawaii, along with three nuclear missiles. USA found out and decided to mount a secret attempt to retrieve it. It's really a pretty crazy story. The American billionaire Howard Hughes pretended to become interested in deep-sea mining, but in fact it wasn't deep-sea mining. It was an effort to build a giant claw that could go all the way down to the seafloor, grab the submarine and bring it back up. But it didn't work. The submarine broke up as it was being lifted. And so those nuclear weapons fell back to the seafloor. And they're there to this day, just off Hawaii. In another instance, in 1961, a B-52 broke up while flying over Goldsboro in North Carolina, dropping two nuclear weapons to the ground. One was relatively undamaged after its parachute deployed successfully, but the other nuclear bomb fell free to the ground where it broke apart and ended up embedded in a field. A lot of the parts were recovered, but the part containing uranium remained stuck under more than 15 metres of mud, and is still there. The US Air Force purchased the land around it to deter people from digging. Oh, I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is in case you want to go and start digging. An extraordinary incident occurred when a training exercise on the USS Ticonderoga went badly wrong in 1965. 
An A4E Skyhawk was being rolled to a plane elevator while it was loaded with a B-43 nuclear bomb. It was like a disaster in slow motion. The crew on deck quickly realised the plane was about to fall off and they were waiting for the pilot to apply the brakes. Tragically, he didn't see them and the young lieutenant, plane and weapon vanished into the Philippine Sea and they're still there to this day, quite close to a Japanese island. Can a nuclear weapon explode underwater? Well, as it happens, it can. In 1989, a Soviet nuclear submarine, the K-278 Komsomolets, sank in the Barents Sea off the coast of Norway. It was nuclear-powered and carried two nuclear torpedoes. For decades, its wreck has been lying under a mile of Arctic water. But in 2019, it's revealed that water samples from the area contain radiation levels up to 100,000 times higher than normally expected in seawater. And back in Palomares, where the nuclear bombs that fell on the ground were eventually recovered, the land is still contaminated with radiation, and many of the US military personnel who helped with the initial recovery, and that involved shoveling the surface of the soil into barrels, have since developed mysterious cancers and died. These days, Palomares is called the most radioactive town in Europe, even though a British company plans to build a holiday resort in the area. Well, the era of lost nuclear weapons, eh? 3CR The 6th of August this year was the 77th anniversary of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And three days later, another dropped on Nagasaki. Nuclear weapons. And now we know that USA and the Soviets were flying around with these bombs on their planes and these bombs in their submarines in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and possibly still doing it now. Who knows? Let's hear from Comrade Natasha, the working class poet. On John Hersey's Hiroshima. The clock froze at 8.15 on Monday morning as the air raid siren warned of a weather plane or B-29. Mrs Nakamura stood by her kitchen window. Then a glance in a flash, a terrible photo flash of light that cut from east to west across the silent sky. In that one instant, from that one bomb, the fan-shaped city lay horizontal, scarred in red and brown and black. Mrs Nakamura hauled through the wreckage of her house to free her three children, crying, Why has night come so soon? Without an answer, they fled to Asano Park, tucked into a bamboo grove, retching, sick, and prostrate in the cloying electric smell. A naked woman by the moon bridge 
stood swollen like a kiln-fired statue, eyes melting into their sockets, one of an endless parade of misery telling of grotesque burning, skin removed like gloves from hands, a pattern of kimono residue in flowers seared across surrealist flesh, the barely living, fallen silent, heads bowed, uncomprehending. A week later, Mrs Nakamura's hair fell out, and fever struck in delayed affliction. But she had lived through the death and heard the rumour that the city was destroyed by the energy released when atoms split in two. They called it Genshi Bakudan, Little Boy. 3CR And it's time to hear from the BL from the bush. Yeah, g'day comrades, g'day listener. It's BL from the bush calling in. Hope you're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah, great show last week, Susanna. Your tribute to Archie and old Uncle Archie. He sort of left us which will be a great loss to uh, to music and to our Indigenous comrades. Archie Roach was certainly a, uh, a legend. He opened up the ears of non-Indigenous people in Australia and around the world as to how this country, this colonised country, treated First Nations people. The Stolen Children, Stolen Generation, which, which his famous song was about, and also implementation of apartheid in this country. Many of you may not be aware, listener, but apartheid started here before it did in South Africa. Everyone rants and raves about the Great Western Australia, but that's where it started, in this country anyway. But Archie was um, was a great storyteller, he was a great musician and a great educator, not only to his own people, but also to, to all Australians. He certainly will sorely be missed. Just on that, I'm not sure what's going on here, but uh, we've had a couple of other deaths just recently, uh, in the last couple of days, Jinder um, Durham and Johnny Famishon, but, and straight away they've, they've got state funerals. Now, the only thing I can sort of put together here is that because of Archie Roach's upbringing and being stolen and moving around the country, maybe that's why that no-one's put their hand up to give him a state funeral. Like, if anyone deserves a state funeral, it's Archie Roach. And by no means that I mean the other, the two reciprocants of the state funeral don't deserve it. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm, what I'm saying is that Archie wrote somewhere along the line, someone should have put their hand up. Whether his family that has been uh, approached, uh, they have different ideas, and I don't know. But that's just my own view on... Uh, I'd be just, uh, I'm just trying to find out why, why he hasn't. But anyway, uh, listen up. I've got a bit on this week. Now, I like asked a few weeks ago, I, I spoke to you about protest laws how the, the state governments all around Australia are implementing these stricter and stricter state laws about protests. Now, last week, the uh, state government here in Victoria, on the 4th, 4th of the 8th, they passed it in legislation that protest laws now, you get your $21,000 fine and you get slowed up to 12 months. Now, that's for... Yeah, you know, what they call illegal protesting or whatever, and that, and it is to do with, I would say, is to do with the uh, protests in the bush about uh, native logging and the like, and it's just not here. 
New South Wales, they've done the same type of thing up there. They've got $22,000 fine and two years slowed up. And that's, and that's protesting, uh, listener, on public roads, rail lines, tunnels, bridges, industrial estates and whatever. So they, they've covered the whole lot. So if just, say, for instance, uh, you know, the, the building unions want to take action, they stick on a protest or whatever, which I think people have forgotten how to do. But if they did, you know, they, they'll be in the gun. They'll, uh, they can uh, start fining them or do what they want. Queensland? Same thing applies up there in Queensland, but now they're even, even you know, you get the odd protesters in, and, and you'd like this, Susan, because you'd, you'd be able to remember way back then, is that, that when the women chained themselves to the arbitration court and whatever, Zelda, uh, using some sort of, of locking devices, well, they're going to be illegal now. You can't use them. They'll be illegal. So if you use a locking device, some chains or whatever, a bit of super glue, or putting your hands in jam tins and locking them up with chains or whatever, well... That's illegal now, so they can they can find you're a slayer you're up over that. Now, this is going on, as I said, from state to state. Tasmania, the old two-headed country down there, is a bill is still before Parliament down there, but uh, their laws are going to be tougher than all the rest because of um, what the Liberal government down there have probably got uh, lined up for the for the beautiful protected forests and what have you down there. They're even gone to the stage where I was reading that um, even if you look like look like having a bit of a demo heading towards Parliament House, they'll put the jacks on you, they'll send the coppers out to you, give you a clip, and start finding you for, for marching towards Parliament House. Now, that's not bad, is it? That even leaves old, old, the, old, the old fascist Joe Bielke, that leaves him a bit back in the dark when they had all the... The, the laws against protesting up there back in the uh, back in the eighties. So it is well worth listening up, keeping an eye on this because somewhere along the line, you or, or whoever or someone you know is going to be involved in a protest of whatever, and they're, they're just going to grab you for for whatever reason for standing outside a kindergarten or protesting about that. These laws are designed now to just grab you. And really, what it's all about, I think, is that it's protecting, you know, it's protecting big business. It's protecting the, the uh, mining companies and the loggers and the gas and, and places that they're digging up and whatever. And when the protesters are going there, that's, that's what all these are about. And that's why they're going from state to state because coal and gas and logging, just, they just want to have free reign over what they're going to be doing. You know, like we're, we've just had all the news of late about all these natural uh, wildlife that's becoming extinct. And so as soon as you get a group of people going out there to tour a protest to, to save them, you know, as I said, they'll send the jacks out and they'll come and grab you, slay you up. This is what it's all about, mate. It's, 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 looking, at, it's looking after the, the, you know, the gas, the coal mining and the, and the logging industry. Yeah, there was once upon a time, listener, where even a sniff of this, a sniff of something like this, these these sort of these sort of laws, the union movement would gather together and they would just have a bit of a meeting and say, right, and all of a sudden we would have a mass demonstration on the streets just to say, listen here, hey, this ain't happening. This is our right. This is what we do. We protest. So that's just something uh, else, listener, to uh, to keep an eye on because as I say. Yeah, it is second nature to a lot of us to get out there and demonstrate, well, you know, yeah, we can't let that happen. Yeah, so-called for the peaceful protest laws. Yeah, what else we got? Listen, I suppose the, something we should look at is the referendum coming up for our, our Indigenous people. Speaking of Archie and, and our Indigenous folk, is that it took a lot 
for the Uluru Statement from the Heart to come to being. And uh, as I've said before, that you had uh, Malcolm Turnbull and the like, and they just got it and threw it in the bin. It treated everyone there with just utter, utter contempt about all that. So there's a referendum on the way coming up. So we'll keep an eye on that. And I would encourage everyone to, well, when that referendum does come out, just to vote. Yes, yes, we do want a referendum. We do want our First Nations people to have a voice in Parliament as of the uh, Uluru Statement. That's probably enough for me this week. Listen up. I'll go out in the same old way. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning for left after breakfast. 3CR And of course a bit of music for the BL from the bush. We always do two or three for the working man, but this is really the working man song, one called the working man blues. It's a big job getting by with nine kids and a wife. Yeah, but I've been a working man, ain't there all my life, but I'll keep on working. As long as my two hands are fit to use, I'll drink a little beer that evening and sing a little bit of this working man blues.
place he won't be He'd be working Long as it's too handed fit to use He might drink a little beer that evening And sing a little bit of his working man blues Good morning to you, Bagman, and how are you today? I'm very good today, Susan. And we go back to the old classics. I'm as fit as a Mallee bull, and I'm as unbiased as the Collingwood cheer squad, as John Cummins used to say. You know something, Bagman? What's that, Susan? I've never seen a Mallee bull, but one day I hope to. Well, Susan, you will live in hope until you see a Mallee bull, and it's quite a sight to see. If you ever go down to the Mallee, somewhere down that way. No, it's uh, up it's, that way. It's up. Oh, up. is it? Yeah, it's not down. It's up. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe I've never seen one because I've been looking for them down there. Well, maybe that's why I've never seen them, because I've been looking up. <laughs> uh, what a sad day. A sad couple of weeks, Susan, for the Australian music scene. Uncle Archie Roach, a couple of weeks ago, uh, who passed away, and uh, your program was dedicated to, uh, to his uh, fine music last week, and this week we've seen, or maybe last week, We've seen Judith Durham from The Seekers and this week Olivia Neutron Bomb has passed away. So a sad day for Australian music. Now, I don't know whether I would agree with the politics of either of those, but I believe they were very, very good people. I know Archie Roach was, but Judith Durham and also Olivia Newton-John because I think uh, Judith Durham, in 1986, uh, was in contact with Irene Bolger from the Nurses' Union, offering to have a benefit for the nurses at that stage. Mm, I wonder what happened there. Maybe it was the group she was in. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there are some strange, or there have been some strange people in that group. One was a Liberal politician. Uh, yeah. But we won't go into that. Let's let's think of these people as good people. I wouldn't put Judith Durham or Olivia Newton-John into the same basket as Archie Roach, of course. But it was a loss to Australian music, those two women. Yeah, sure was. And uh, they've both been offered a state funeral. I'm not too sure whether Uncle Archie Roach has, uh, I think, I believe his family has declined the offer of a state funeral, but if anybody ever deserved a state funeral in this country, it was Uncle Archie Roach. I remember going back 28 years, Susan, when I used to see Archie Roach in the studio at 3CR practising his favourite song, his most famous song, Charcoal Lane. So I go back all that way, Hmm. And uh, now, Susan, you have 
every right to ask. You're a taxpayer, I'm a taxpayer, and we have every right to ask without laying any blame or any responsibility for any crime. But as Australian taxpayers, we have the right to ask. You will notice that there has been, for the last three years, just come to the fore that uh, there's been a tug of war between the Australian Federal Police and a politician by the name of George Christensen. Now, George Christensen was dubbed the member for Manila because George Christensen spent 300 days out of his electorate during the years of 2014 and 2018. Get a grip on that, Susan. Out of his electorate, wandering the streets of Manila and the red light district. Come on, just because the bloke wanted to hang around in the red light bars. You know what? I mean, why pick on him? Oh, well, Susan, let's look at it uh, realistically. 28 trips to the Philippines. 28 trips to the Philippines between 2014 and 2018. It's a well-known fact that George Christensen used to walk the streets of Manila, known for its red light district. Can you imagine this, Susan? Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. He used to roam the streets of Manila in (laughs) Hawaiian-style shirt, board shorts, and thongs, and buying giant teddy bears and chocolates for women in the bar. One of the places he used to frequent quite often was a place called Ponytails, which advertised itself as an adult entertainment service, employing 100 female dancers and 50 female staff. Now, good luck to him for employing Females, that might be an exploited situation. And apparently, it's in one of those bars during the 28 trips and the 300 days when he was wandering the red light district of Manila and Angeles. He had said that it was here that he's met his wife in April 2017. But the point was, he spent about one 250 days wandering the streets of Manila in the board shorts in his Hawaiian-style shirt and his thongs buying giant teddy bears and chocolates for women in the bath before he even met his wife. Now, if that's not a, a case for a federal uh, integrity inquiry, I will give the game away. If it wasn't so funny, it would be funnier. But Bergman, you're not suggesting that we, as taxpayers, paid for this. Surely he paid privately? I don't know. That's a question that we're entitled to ask. Now, 28 trips to the Philippines over 300 days would put a hole in his pocket, I would imagine. He probably had a gold pass, which all politicians get. I'm pretty sure that in the end, it was a taxpayer's expense. And even if it wasn't, he was away from his electorate for 300 days. Who was doing his job? 
there would have been some poor bastard in his election office that would have been covering for him while he roamed the streets of Manila. It's a sight to behold, Susan. You told me and now I can't unsee it. Let's hope that it's not some time if an integrity commission is set up. This mad Christian, uh, as he is, um, not that all Christians are mad, of course. Well, this is, this is one mad Christian. Um, <laughs> but he will be brought to book for his waste of taxpayers' money. But, but then again, Susan, there's a lot of people, if they have that Federal Integrity Commission, who are going home in the back of a dippy van. Yes, and they are too. But tell me, Bagman, I wonder if the Minister for Sugar and the member for Manila, I wonder if he ever brought a giant teddy bear back to Australia. Oh, no. If he did, he would have been caught by customs and would have lost his job, as has been in the case. I think, was it a television, a black and white television back in the 70s? And a Paddington uh, bear. A Paddington bear. And a bear. Paddington bear. And those people lost their jobs for not declaring them. But there you go. It's a funny game, politics. It's a funny game. Now, talk about pure evil. Talk about pure evil. Alex Jones, who used to run a television program called InfoWars in America. And this is a man supported by Donald Trump Sovereign soldiers, and we all know the sovereign soldiers are out and about here, anti-vaxxers and, more important, QAnon supporters who believe the absolute rubbish that the tragic killing of school children was played by actors. Get that right, that dead school children, dead, were played by actors. Their parents were actors too, according to this brain-dead excuse for a human and those who believed him and know better than this particular mongrel. There are still people out there probably listening to this program, Susan. Who no. Involved. Yes, well, let's hope so. But uh, you never know, one might run across this, your very popular program. There are people that believe in this sort of rubbish circulated by QAnon. But anyway, he's been ordered to pay $4.5 million to one group of parents, and I believe there is another group of parents who are coming after him because he said, and people believe, the brain-dead people believe, that dead children, not only a Sandy Hook, but at other places where school massacres have taken place were paid by actors. But what's worse, Bagman, is these morons who believe this absolute rubbish and you're right to say evil, mm. that people drove past the houses of these parents and fired through their windows and sent them, <gasps> and sent them death threats. Oh, I didn't hear that part of it, Susan. It makes it even more sickening. And oh. there are people there are people that marched on the streets of Melbourne only last year carrying Trump flags, sovereign soldiers or cut lunch commandos, as I prefer to call them, 
and anti-vaxxers who actually believe. Now, I'm, uh, I've got to be careful what I say, but bullshit. You know that I attacked one a couple of weeks back. I've heard that. I couldn't help myself. I don't know what came over me. I just I just lost it. Uh, it was seeing one of these mad... Well, I can't even think of a word that's bad enough to describe them, but some pathetic anti-vaxxer <laughs> carrying the Eureka flag, and I just snapped. How dare he? How dare he carry the Eureka flag? And I just, I lost it, and I leapt in. And I tell you what, though, the next day I was a bit bruised from the police dragging me away, and I lost my hat. Oh, I lost oh. my Yeah, well, the police had to drag me off him, and he ran, oh, he ran. <laughs> he ran away. Well, you lost your head as well as your hat. Yeah. That's a problem with the Eureka face, Susan. It's been stolen. A, a magnificent case of theft by right-wing organisations that want to flout the Eureka history and claim it is their own. But I'm almost afraid to go out wearing the Eureka flag on my jumper because some person or think that I'm one of these right-wing Nazis that used to march on the streets. They're still marching on the bloody streets, Bagman. Well, I haven't seen them recently, Susan. I think they've, they've all gone back into under the rocks where they live. Now, I've got to ask you, Susan, simple question. What was she thinking? Now, have a guess who I'm talking about. Um, no. Who? Try Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi has almost started World War Three. I'm not a supporter of Russia. I'm not a supporter of China. And I'm definitely not a supporter of America. But she went and stirred the possum amongst Taiwanese. They've now got the Chinese firing missiles over and above the country of Taiwan. What was she thinking? It's called diplomacy. Not in this case. <laughs> no, absolutely not in this case. She failed miserably. It's hard enough for us here in Australia to have people such as Peter Dutton uh, trying to poke China into war. I'll give you odds about who win there into war with China and other countries. And here's this woman going and poking the bear. Oh, I think the bear is Russia, isn't it? <laughs> poking the panda. Never poke a panda. No, you'll, you'll come off second best, I'm sure, Susan. Hey, something actually brought back many, many memories to me. There's a woman called Brittany Griner who has been jailed in Russia for apparently uh, carrying marijuana. I think it was medical marijuana, but that doesn't matter to the Russians. And she's apparently been sentenced to nine years. Now, I've got to remember, Susan, this is a, a ripper yarn because I went to the Soviet Union, as it was then called, in 1983 as part of a trade union delegation. Now, I'd done all the work that I was supposed to do. I addressed workers. 
I just uh, meetings and whatever. It was only on the way out. We were part of a delegation, so we were given access into the country and we were given privileged access out of the country. But just as I was about to go through the boarding gate, a security guard pulled me aside and insisted that I empty my pockets so he could search me. Now, I didn't know at that stage. If I had known, I would have used it. But I had a small piece of marijuana wrapped up in newspaper, which I'd carried in my overcoat pocket for at least 12 months. Now, I had to lay out all my stuff on a table in front of him, and he said, what is this? And I thought, oh, shit, I'm gone here. I said, uh, cha, cha, it's good for my liver, for my kidneys, cha, cha. And at the same time, I had all my money spread out on the table, all the coins, and the policeman looked at me and said, this, me? And I said, sure, mate, you uh-huh. can take it all. <laughs> and he took it and he let me go. But did you keep your charm? At that stage, that that was the last thing I wanted. When I write my book, Susan, when I write my book, that's got to be a chapter in in my book. Adventures in the Soviet, kicking the shepherd around Red Square. Oh, yes, that's right. I did kick the... uh, uh, It was a Ross Faulkner, actually, Susan. Oh, sorry. I thought it was Sharon. I used to carry a football everywhere I went in the Soviet Union, as it was called then, and I was caught kicking a Ross Falter or a Sharon in Red Square and was quickly arrested, but I was given the football back. I was just given, well, we could say a kick up the bum. Well, dear me, I thought you were allowed <laughs> to kick balls around in Red Square. No, I, I don't think so, Susan, because I was kicking... Drop punts over Lennon's tomb. I, I don't think that went down well. That's not showing respect, comrade. No, well, it was only a couple of years later that I did show the, the proper respect for Lennon and uh, I visited his tomb as I visited the tomb of Ho Chi Minh also. So I've got around, but that's all part of the book that I'm about to write soon. Now, congratulations to one Muslim woman, Fatima Payman. She was, is ordained to Parliament. She's now a senator, and she's the first Muslim woman to enter the Senate of Australia wearing the hijab. It's a hijab, not a burqa, not like oh, that other woman wore. Oh, that, that's right, the uh, Neanderthal redhead, she had a political stunt wearing the burqa into the Senate. Well, this is the first genuine person, the first person elected and as a representative of Australians to wear the hijab into the Senate. Good for her, good for her. Yeah, good on her. I was going to buy some furniture this week. I've been saving up my money to buy some furniture because if you've seen the sofa that I'm sitting on at the moment, and I thought about where I would buy that furniture, and I read the Harvey Norman catalogue every morning. That's where I catch up on my news, the Harvey Norman catalogue. It used to be called the Age newspaper. 
and then I thought about it and I want to know why I'll never shop at Harvey Norman. It came fighting back to me because Harvey Norman, or hardly normal, said, this is out of his own gob, donating to the homeless was helping no hopers to survive for no good reason. Jerry Harvey. Now, that's why I would never uh, shop there, and we don't advocate consumer boycotts, but I would say to everybody listening to this program, that's a good reason why you would never, ever shop at Harvey Norman again. That's one good reason, but I never, ever, ever would shop at that man's place. I have been guilty in the past until I, you know, you see some of these comments that he made about homeless people and about the poor, and full stop, you don't go there. You boycott the whole place. I also wouldn't suggest that we call a community boycott. We're not here to do that, Bagman, but I have my own. Yep, you can have your own. You have your own boycott. Tell your family not to shop at Harvey. Now, last week, Lydia Thorpe, when being sworn into the Senate, talked about the colonising queen of Australia. Well, she's copped uh, the rounds of the table over that. But I'm with Thorpe. What next? Swearing allegiance to King Charles, the bastion of fidelity and faithfulness? This country was invaded and is well beyond the time we got behind the Prime Minister and the government to reaffirm this fact and give the original inhabitants their rightful place and heed their voice. About time. I think, actually, Bagman, that when the Queen carks it, I mean, when she drops off the twig, what do I mean? I mean when she dies. Yeah. I don't know how many people, particularly in this country, would be amenable to King Charlie talking to his flowers and plants, etc., and his and his odious children. But I don't know, we've yet to see, but I think the Queen herself has got some sort of nostalgic touch tug mm. to people. Mm. I mean mm. I mean I mean I'm the one that gave her a bouquet of flowers after all and I think of her with fondness at times sometimes. Well, were you ever forgiven for that, too? You got a confession? I was only nine, bad man. Uh, well, before we finish, I've got to say, uh, talking about uh, Olivia Newton-John and her wellness centre, we've got to take into account that there's a wing in the name of John Cummins, that hero of the working class. It's a particular wing of the hospital that deals with people with brain tumours which Camo died of back in 2008. So on that note, Susan, let's go out the same old way. Yeah, it's about what? that time. <laughs> it is about that time, Susan. Let's go out the same old way. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from left after breakfast. And let's heal Charcoal Lane. Here you go, Bagman. This is for you. Side by side, we walk along 
to the end of Gertrude Street And with tarpaul and mustard for a fourth of wine Because then, right or wrong In the cold and in the heat We cross over Smith Street to the end of the line Then we laugh and sing Do anything to take away the pain Trying to keep it down as it first went down In Charcoal Lane Spending young and telling jokes Now the wine is tasting good Cause it's getting closer and closer to its end Have a sip and roll some smokes We'd smoke better maids if we could But we just made do with some city street blend Then we'd all chuck in and we'd start to grin When we had enough to do it again But if things got hard then we had to buy For charcoal lane Up Gertrude Street, we'd walk once more With just a few cents short And we'd stop at the builders to see who we could see And we'd bite around until we score A flagon of McWilliams Port Enough to take away our misery And we'd all get drunk Oh, so drunk And maybe a little insane And we'd stand at home All alone And the next day we'd do it again Have a revival I'm a survivor of Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.